So great, uh, Dan, first of all, thank you so much for, uh, for being here and for talking to me. And I'm very excited uh, to be speaking about your new book. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating uh, read. And it, I mean, it, you've done so many amazing things. You've had a real iconic spiritual quest for your life, which makes you a perfect person to speak to on this theme of the modern spiritual quest. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to uh, ask you about is, is in the initiation point of a spiritual quest is, is always interesting because everybody gets initiated somehow, uh, you know, uh, and your initiation came from, I believe, from what I read, uh, a motorcycle accident that you had, that that's, that kind of started you opened you to more. Uh, and I would love to hear you speak about initiation in terms of how does one go from just living a normal life to recognizing that they're, they want to find more? Well, that's an interesting question, Jeff. I, I've viewed my life more like a dimmer switch being turned up and then down slightly and then up more, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, although most people love the idea of one accident, you know, getting uh, smacked on the side of the head by a cosmic ore and suddenly having this initiatory experience. I've had numerous initiatory experiences, beginning uh, the day when I was about 10 years old, when I discovered an old trampoline and started jumping on it. Right. Um, that, that set a course for me uh, out of the love I discovered of just jumping up and down in that physical activity into gymnastics, trampoline, and uh, college scholarship, where I discovered new things at Berkeley, and one thing began another. But yes, I would have to say a benchmark element in my life was when I was at the top of my physical form, uh, training for the Olympics, uh, and my motorcycle uh, collided with a car that turned in front of me, not uncommon, and shattered my right femur. I described that in my first book, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, of course, mm. uh, and in the Peaceful Warrior movie based on that book. Um, and, and that did shake me up, and I'm pointing up right now. It, it opened me to bigger questions, to my own mortality, for one thing, um, and made me more introspective. And that mm -hmm. set in motion, as you know, from reading uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, the memoir, um, it, it made me more thoughtful and introspective and started me on a course of events that would eventually lead toward my discovering uh, the four mentors that I, I describe and those experiences in the book over a 20-year period. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. The, most people... I, I'm relating to myself is, is also true. There were various points of, as you said, the dimmer switch went up and you were like, oh my God, there's more. And then goes back down. Uh, and then in my life as well, not as dramatically as yours, uh, I got to a place when I was an engineer where I realized I was really miserable, that I had everything that my, the dominant culture told me I would need to be happy and I was not happy. And so there's a kind of positive disruption to the life flow. So in your case, a motorcycle accident was a positive disruption. In my case, it was the failure to find happiness in a traditional life that made me look for more. Well, yes, and I think for both of us, Jeff, it's a, it was kind of a process of disillusion. This didn't work, that didn't work. Um, and so success led to that disillusion. Uh, 
it didn't make me happy in, in that sense I was hoping for. And in the end of every rainbow, uh, the promise of every, the, whether it's a better relationship or an improvement of our finances, uh, getting more respect, a better job, we, the promise uh, is uh, we'll be happy then. Um, you know, the interesting phrase you used that you, you realized you weren't happy. Um, and people say, well, wouldn't you know it? But not necessarily. There was a man named Dave Megacy who was a football player. He was a linebacker or something for a professional team. And because he was so stiff, someone suggested he start taking up yoga. But with the yoga, he did relaxation exercises, breathing, you know, pranayam, and gradually developed more sensitivity. And then that led him to go into practice and go, you know what? This hurts too much. And many of us have that archetypal moment of this hurts too much, or I'm, this doesn't make me happy. What do I want to do about this? And that's the key point in our life. That's in, like an initiatory mo moment as well for both of us, I think. Yes, absolutely. And this, you know, often happens, I think, in, in you know, part of the, this, this theme here is modern spiritual quest. All it often happens in the modern world is we're told in the current paradigm that if you're successful, if you make money, if you get the right relationship, if you do this, if you do that, you will be happy. And some of us come to a point where we realize we're not actually going to, this isn't leading to happiness. Uh, Something I, that I often remind people, of, you know, the best thing about going to college is you discover it doesn't make you happy with a degree, maybe a little while, but some people who never went to college uh, would say to themselves for years, if only I'd gone to college, I'd be happy. If only I had met my soulmate or had a better relationship, I'd be happy. If only I had children, I'd be happy. If only I hadn't had children, I'd be happy. If only I made more money, as you're pointing out, if only I traveled more, I had more respect, um, retired, then I'd be happy. But then we finally come to the point to realize that there's no such thing as future happiness. We bring happiness into the moment as a practice now, or we don't. And people sometimes ask me, well, wait a minute, Dan, this whole spiritual quest, I mean, how do you practice happiness? And I ask them, well, you've felt happy in moments in your life. Are you more present when you're happy? Are you more kind? Are you more enthusiastic? Yes. And I said, then practice that. Bring that into life. Radiate happiness. <clears throat> Don't just wait for it to come upon you as some giddy feeling. And that changes an approach. It makes happiness more under our control, something we can do rather than something we're waiting to feel. Mm, beautiful. And, and, and what's fascinating uh, is how, yeah, in modern life, well, I just remember for myself, well, I now teach meditation. So one of the things that, that's really touching me is, uh, how in meditation you'll hear everyone's dissatisfied with their experience of practice so somebody's saying i never have any powerful experiences and that's making me unhappy someone else is saying i have this incredibly powerful experience every time is there something wrong and i started to realize that no matter what you're experiencing the habit of making something wrong is going to make it wrong and it won't matter how you change things is if you don't overcome the habit of making something wrong, you'll never find happiness. Yes, I like that way of phrasing it. <clears throat> Another way is about where, uh, you know, 
I think it was Ram Das who pointed out that if we don't get what we want, we suffer in the sense of uh, dissatisfaction. And if we get what we really don't want, we also suffer. And even if we get exactly what we want, we still suffer because life is change and we can't hold on to anything forever. Um, so that that's why one of my four mentors I describe in, in the new book, um, the guru was the one who said, it's, the search only reinforces the sense of dilemma that sends us right. seeking in the first place. Right. And so there's a point at which we need to rest in the moment and begin to accept and embrace our life as it is. Uh, and, and that is a, a central point uh, along the spiritual path. Since you've gone into your four mentors, uh, I was very, because I've been curious for decades who your mentors were. So I finally got to find out. Uh, and I really want to uh, say again, the book is Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And uh, it's a really good read. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, Dan, you're, you're really uh, a somewhat of a spiritual hero to me. Uh, and your book, Way of a Peaceful Warrior, was so valuable and reading this book and finding out your 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 real life journey uh was fascinating uh so your the first mentor that you mentioned was uh oscar ichazu yes ichazu and he's credited with the first version of the enneagram yes uh i, I call him the professor in the book because of the archetypal role a headmaster of uh a spiritual school unlike any I'd ever heard of, and I'd studied the history of spirituality on the planet, because there are Buddhist schools, Tibetan schools, you know, uh, in the Hasidic tradition, uh, schools of the Kabbalah, uh, Christian mystics. Uh, there are many schools that have their own tradition, but Oscar embraced the global heritage, uh, as I described in the book, through his own unique uh, exposure to different teachers. And he um, had this approach that uh, I benefited from and, and others did as well, um, that embraced generic spirituality, the essence of mm. uh, blends of integrated breath work and relax, deep relaxation models, concepts, um, 50 different kinds of meditations for different purposes. Um, which really drew us in. And, and yes, and, and I'd like you to repeat the question. I think I lost. Oh, it's okay. The question basically just was, um, well, I, all I was asking was the name at that point. So I hadn't actually asked the question. Uh, the question just is, because he spoke about attachments, uh, nine attachments, and evidently that was later oh. developed with the Enneagram. So my question is, how much is that still a part of, how much has, does that still influence your thinking, that mm -hmm. the idea of the, the different parts of the self, the different self types? Well, the broader question, the broader spiritual question, every spiritual tradition acknowledges uh, it's important to know thyself. Right. And, but they mean it in a different way. Now, I use self-knowledge in a practical sense in everyday life as what are my talents, what are my values, and what are my interests? Because if we don't know ourselves, we end up making the right decision for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. Um, and so self-knowledge is key. We all know the story by now about the, uh, uh, the Temple of Athena, the Oracle of Delphi, uh, centuries ago, supposedly written over the, the, that temple is the words uh, in, in Greek, I presume, um, know thyself. And 
the whole idea of the Enneagram and other methods and models are ways to step out of ourselves and observe ourselves more objectively. Gurdjieff was very much into that uh, objective self-observation. Um, so the context is that Oscar looked for the most effective means of self-knowledge. Hmm. Insight, knowing ourselves literally to the bone, knowing our anatomy, knowing where the placement of every organ in our body, being in touch with that. So knowing ourselves on physical, emotional, psychological levels, um, it's not just about illuminating our shadow or the usual shadow work, dream work, Jungian therapy. It's knowing yourself to the point of transcendence where you know yourself so deeply where you know, no longer can pull your usual strategies. Yes. Um, and so there was an intensive process of self-analysis using various models. And Oscar was the first and the only one, to my knowledge, to actually... Uh, show us how, when I was a teacher for the school that he taught, we learned how to analyze um, the asymmetry on someone's face mm. and the neural connections to the brain to determine their ego fixation, as he called it. Which, um, and you know, he, as you know from reading the book, he taught Claudio Naranjo, one of his right. original students, a psychologist, who eventually. Uh, taught Helen Palmer or a student of his taught Helen Palmer it was handed down and then she wrote the book on the Enneagram and so on and uh, Stephen Riso and others did but uh, finally uh, they had to admit that the source of the modern day Enneagram um, which was used by Gurdjieff and the Jesuits and others the source of this deep uh, means of understanding ourselves was Oscar Ichazo and they popularized it, and there's always use for popularizers. Um, but I want to acknowledge him as the originator of this particular um, utilization of the Enneagram method. Again, I, I agree with you that attribution is important. Uh, we need to remember our sources, even in the in the very short history of the uh, alternative spiritual modern world. We need to remember where we got things. And uh, so you also worked early on, early in his career with Franklin Jones, who later became Adida, uh, and eventually left that work, the, that kind of crazy wisdom school. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you know that my primary spiritual work was in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which is also the, the, the similar always already philosophy uh, you already mentioned the idea that that the seeking is the thing that's keeping you from realizing that you already are. Um, so how does that how does that always already quality how does that continue to be part of what you teach and what you uh, uh, share with people? Well, so many of us are seeking from a sense of lack. Um, I am not yet a peaceful warrior. People write that to me. Or I am not yet enlightened. I'm not happy enough. So I need to, from that point of lack, I need to uh, search and find something. And, and there are salespeople out there of one kind or another, whether they wear robes and beads or, or um, uh, personal success and power, that sort of thing. So it makes us vulnerable to somebody who can promise they're going to give us what we don't have. And so it's, it's, I think it's crucial. Uh, and that's one of the central uh, uh, points of value I learned from 
Adida, the man I called the guru. It wasn't yet called Adida. He had many different names, um, which was to, to begin from a place uh, and, and to rest in what already is always the case, which you could say is our divine nature and the innate perfection of the world. Even with all our problems and troubles in our own lives and in the world today, uh, there is a place of perfection, a transcendent place where we can accept that, that all is unfolding as it is meant to be. Now, do I know this is true? No, I don't. But it is, it, it's a resourceful approach to life. Um, you know, I define faith, F-A-I-T-H, as the courage to live as if everything that happens is for our highest good and learning. Mm. It goes along with that larger theme. Uh, now, do I know that is true? No, I do not. But I'd rather live as if that were true. Uh, it makes a different point of life, a different attitude than uh, other approaches, such as, why is this happening to me? Um, you know, the victim kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So the, as long as I recognize it as a belief, I'm not recognizing it as truth. You know, the one thing that defines fundamentalism is all fundamentalists uh, mistake my belief for truth with a capital T. Right. Whether it's cooking school fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism. Uh, and so I do recognize there are operating beliefs that... Um, I've embraced, I'm not attached to, but they work for me. They help me live a positive, resourceful life. Um, so that, that's a wandering response to your- No, that's great. And, and you know, it brings me to this, uh, the idea of belief and, and initiation, because part of the initiation for me and for you and for millions of other modern seekers is we're told, we're given an operating system. Uh, and the operating system says, work hard, control circumstances, attain, accumulate, and you'll be happy. At some point you realize, oh, that's just a belief. I was right. told it was the truth, but now I realize it's the belief. And so when people will ask, they'll ask me what, like they ask, probably ask you, because I do believe in the already, always already, uh, that, that there is something inherently always already whole and perfect about life, even in spite of all the parts that I wish were different and I, I can't stand. People will say, well, how do you know that? I was, well, I don't, you know, I, can, I can't prove it to you as a scientific fact, but you can't prove otherwise as a scientific fact either. You can choose to believe that hard work and diligence and protect and self-protection is the best way to live and you'll live a life. Or you can live as if things are at some level always already perfect and you can be open and receptive and free and happy now and you'll live it that life. <laughs> so it's just a matter of which life do you want to live? Yes, and that, you know, there's, a, there's an old Serbian proverb, two men looked out of prison bars, one saw mud and the other saw stars. Mm. Now, both mud and stars exist in our lives. If you deny or ignore the mud, you can step in it. Um, but where do we want to spend our time and attention? We want to remember the stars as well. So, um, you know, some people think that I'm here just to cite the teachings of my four mentors. I don't do that really, for the most part. Right. Um, they open doors of my own insight. And one of those insights that I expressed in one of my earlier books called The Hidden School 
is that we live in two worlds, a conventional world and a transcendental world, two dimensions, let's say, where our psyche, can, our awareness can uh, uh, animate from. And most of the time, appropriately, we spend in the conventional world doing our work, uh, taking care of kids, having relationships. Um, and yet, many, many of us sometimes go into these dark nights of the soul or wake up at night wondering, what's it all about, really? What am I here for? And that's the yearning for the transcendent, the liberation, mm. to rise above it all. Um, and, and one way I describe it is we get lost down in the weeds at the base of a mountain. And we're examining the little minutiae down as we, as we appropriately need to in everyday life. But there are moments, there are elements or experiences, such as I describe in the book, where we, we find ourselves suddenly on the mountaintop. Mm. And, and that mountaintop is the transcendent, is what's already always the case. That bigger reality, the bigger picture. Now, and that's what we yearn for in spiritual practice, uh, in, in, in spiritual adventure. We're seeking that mountaintop where everything is more beautiful from a distance, the panoramic view, the bigger picture of life, which is kind of the spiritual vision. Um, and when we have breakthroughs, whatever the means, whether it's a teacher, whether it's enough spiritual practice, whether it's meditation, when we have the means to access that, we then see that everything is okay. From a conventional view, everything isn't okay. Mm. Uh, I could say, you know, that, that life sucks. And that is, those aren't my words, they're the Buddha's. But the way he put it was, life is suffering or mm. dissatisfaction. Um, but I could also say life is not only beautiful, but absolutely perfect from a transcendental viewpoint. I can say that time exists, which is demonstrably so. Look at a clock passing, ticking the hours away and the seconds. That's true from a conventional view. From a transcendental view, there's no such thing as time. Where all, we can, all we have is the eternal present. I could say that free will is absolutely real. We make choices and we're responsible for our choices. From a conventional view, absolutely true. From a transcendental view, free will is an illusion. I could say that we are separate selves, and, if, and that's demonstrably true. I could, if I stub my toe, it doesn't hurt you unless uh, you're highly empathic. Uh, but uh, from a transcendental view, um, we are all one. From that, that point of awareness that is shining through billions of eyes, we're the same consciousness. So there are these paradoxical truths opposite polar opposites that are both true, depending on whether we're looking at life from a conventional or transcendental view. And the trick is to embrace both at the same time. Mm. Beautiful. Um, now, I didn't learn that from any of my mentors. Yes. That, that came as a result of the insights from having studied all those decades with them. Yes, and it's important to say that although these are the four mentors you particularly highlight in the book, yes. you also you had a lot of other influences uh, during that time. You you had a very very active seeking life uh, yes. for a long time, and one of the things that I admire about you and about the book is what it, it's, and I think if people read it, they'll get a sense of how you got these seeds what I saw as seeds of kernels of insight that you picked up 
from different people, different circumstances, different experiences, and and they they went through the sieve of your life and and were distilled into what you how you live and and how you teach what you teach and i just think you know i have so much respect for the amount of focus that you've given to spiritual life over your entire life it's a rare and and beautiful thing to see someone be so devoted to higher ideals and share those uh for a whole lifetime uh so I wanted to make that clear. This is this is not a book about the teachers that you had. This right. is a book about a spiritual quest yes. that you embarked upon for your entire life, which, which is why you're perfect to speak to. So I'm just going to mention the last two for, for completion's sake. They, they were both people I did not know. Mm -hmm. uh, so Richie, uh, one is um, Michael Bookbinder, yes. uh, a Hawaiian. Uh, he, and he seemed to get his wisdom from the Hawaiian Kahuna tradition. And I've done some study of Lomi Lomi massage in that tradition. So I, I was curious about that. And, and then David K. Reynolds, who is an interesting, you know, he was interesting because he was very much in a sense a behaviorist in the sense that he felt what really matters is what you do. Uh, and my teachers often taught the same thing. You're not responsible for how you think or feel that's being generated by the mind, but how you respond to that and bring that into action is, is totally your responsibility. So just any words you want to share about, about the, the seeds, the kernels of insight you got from those two mentors uh, it would be welcome. Sure, and it's important to note that they followed the professor and the guru, uh, Oscar right. Chazo and Adida, who I was a student for almost eight years. Um, and, and I was done with teachers. When I stumbled upon, uh, through odd circumstances, Michael Bookbinder, the warrior priest, I call him. Um, and yeah, part of his wisdom, the three selves, as I describe in the book, um, were from the Kahuna or the Huna teachings, um, though translated in a particular way. You won't find any Hunas describing them quite the same way. Mm. Um, but it was a very useful model, and, and I found it practical. As a former athlete, I like practical outcomes over abstract yeah. philosophy. Um, so, um, but how many teachers of metaphysics also can teach you knife fighting or spiritual growth <laughs> through knife fighting? Um, so the variety uh, that I was exposed to, physical, emotional, mental kinds of trainings um, had a kind of thread. And if I discovered them in opposite order, that would have been very strange. I'm glad they came in the order they did. Maybe one prepared me for the next. But by the time I found him, I was, you know, I was starting to teach uh, what I could. But he gave me the tools. The, the warrior priest or Michael Bookbinder gave me very clear tools of conveying to other people, to sharing what I so wanted to share. Because about that time in my life, I also realized that no matter how much I improved myself, which I was very much pursuing in my younger years, only one person benefited. But if I could somehow influence other people in a positive way, um, that made my life more meaningful. And so I was seeking ways to do that. And from the knife fighting training, spiritual growth through knife fighting, uh, deep insight that I could gain almost no other way, um, I learned that from the warrior priest, from Michael Bookbinder. And but as well as a system of uh, self-understanding uh, that culminated in a book called The Life You Were Born to Live. 
Um, and, and that was also became a major part, a major platform of my work. Um, he was an oral teacher, never wrote much of anything, but I ended up taking 20 pages of notes as I wrote in that book and developing it uh, over the years into a 400 page book that uh, has reached uh, well over a million readers, uh, maybe 2 million by now. Um, so he gave me the practical tools that I didn't actually find from the earlier teachers. I had perspectives, insights, breakthroughs, but he gave me the, the methods. It was almost like a, a, a master life coach training mm. um, that I got from Michael Bookbinder. And, and after that, um, through the circumstances, as you know, I wrote about in the book, we, we had to part ways. Um, and then David Reynolds, this, this you know, anthropological psychologist um, who synthesized uh, two different teachers from the Japanese tradition, um, that brought me back down to earth and brought me back down to simple reality of what, you know, what the, the major question in my life is, what do I need to do now? And responding to that. Um, responding appropriately to the moment. Uh, and so it, it was not a circle exactly, but a, a path, a progressive path, um, as in the Zen tradition where you go to the mountaintop and then finally you return to the marketplace. And it brought me back to the marketplace, to everyday life with new ideas about conventional notions. For example, I no longer define success in terms of financial terms or respect or status. Um, now I define success as making meaningful progress uh, toward a goal, mm. something meaningful to us. Beautiful. Every step of the way is a form of success. Uh, you know, in the Peaceful Warrior movie, Dan's character discovers after he goes up a, up a big hike with the, my literary mentor Socrates, and Dan says, you know, I just realized it's the journey that makes us happy not the destination, which is a nice insight worth sharing. But without a destination in mind, there is no journey uh, that we just wander around. I think we're hardwired goal seekers. And, and I think living a purposeful life, having a goal in front of us, whether it's uh, an immediate goal five minutes from now to what we want to accomplish or a longer term, I think gives our life meaning and purpose and direction. Um, so I think it's important to have a purpose, but the one I focus on more, I even wrote a book called The Four Purposes of Life, mm. but the, the most important one is our purpose in this moment. I know my purpose right now in this moment with you, you know your purpose. We don't have to search for it. So um, I think uh, David Reynolds, the sage, helped me to uh, come back to manageable, controllable things I can do in everyday life to help make a difference and, and share that with other people. That's beautiful, Dan. And uh, I want to finish up uh, our interview and I want to thank you again. So uh, uh, the book is, is Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Uh, it's, well, by the time this interview cuts in print, it will have just come out. Uh, and it will be very exciting, I think, to, to, for this to, to hit, the, hit the bookshelves uh, and for people to find it. So one last thing, I hope you'll have time I to- have I got my first copy. I can't wait to get my, I'm gonna get a, a paper copy as well. 
uh, from Monique. Yes, uh, it's it's only out in paperback. So and and uh, my my daughter produced the, the audio book. So um, I relate that it's available in audio and ebook, of course, as well. Oh, fantastic! Um, and I'll put links in our uh, in our article for people to find it. Oh, so one last thing for you to respond to: my audience is is a lot of people who've been on the path for years and sometimes decades. I'm sure many of them, if not all of them, have read your book or 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 seen the movie. Or, uh, what what's the final piece of advice? Here here there are seekers, you know, who've been on the path for a long time. And, and in spite of the all, always already perfect state of the world, we live in the world as it is. If you could give advice to, to the modern spiritual seeker, what, what would you want to tell them? I hope what they take away from the book and what I'd like to share right now is a reminder, because that's all most teachers can do is offer reminders, perspectives, uh, and principles. Um, and I'd like to remind. I remind people of what they already know at deeper levels, but we tend to forget. Hmm. And the reminder is to trust your own process, your own journey. Uh, it is unique. Your story is your treasure. There's no story on the planet exactly like it. Uh, and in, a, in that sense, to no longer compare yourself to anyone else. As soon as we compare ourselves, we're either feeling superior or inferior. And when I was a young coach, I realized that some people learned somersaults easier than others. They learned them faster. But often those who took longer to learn, learned them better than those who learned them more quickly. So it's a reminder to trust our own way of learning, our own life experience, not look at Dan Millman or look at all the things he did, but notice and appreciate our own uh, process and innate value and to live our lives not try to live anyone else's dan that is a beautiful sentiment to end on uh, i want to send you so much love and respect thank and you Jen. best wishes for this book and thank you so much for giving us the time i was thrilled to be able to talk to you it was a, really a privilege uh relating and seeing you again and having our conversation well i hope we get a chance to talk again <laughs>